Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 22nd, 2021. The guilty, guilty, guilty edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined... Fortunately, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, the Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And from New York City, John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes. Hello, John. Don't give me your hellos. Hello, David. Okay, no hellos. <laughs> Howdy. Howdies. On today's GapFest, Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd. How will it change policing? Will it change America? We will talk to the poet and activist Dwayne Betts about that. Then, why is Andrew Yang leading the New York mayoral race? He's barely a New Yorker. He's not a progressive. What's going on? And then, almost 20 years ago, the U.S. went to war against Iraq, a war that caused death and destruction and cost $2 trillion, disillusioned millions of Americans. How did that war happen? Why did we go to war? We're going to talk to Noreen Malone, who's the host of the new season of Slow Burn, a podcast series about events in history, in this case, event about how the Iraq war happened. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Guys, guys, <laughs> did I tell you about my new obsession? I'm taking an online class in life drawing. It is amazing. Life I have drawing? Life yeah. drawing. I haven't done any drawing since high school. I'm terrible, but I love doing it. And you'd think like life drawing, it's like sexy, but the models are just like regular people and they have regular people's bodies, which is too bad. But this week's nude male drawing class, the model was former Justice Breyer. Can you believe he stayed on a little bit after class to talk to us? And he said he'd always wanted to model. Um, and now that he's off the court. He finally has time to do it. It was really sweet. And he was a really good model. He, he was extremely still. <laughs> he. He said he sometimes would, he used to hold, he used to practice holding the expression for an entire Supreme Court argument in preparation. It was great. Sadly, none of this happened because he insists on sitting fully clothed in the Supreme Court chair. He refuses to leave. Although it does seem to me that you've introduced a titillating new prospect, which is that when he is on the court in the robe, it may be that the robe is the only thing in sheathing him. Possibly, possibly so. I like how Emily, Emily's no longer even reacting. I, She's I just reading like, her email. Emily's not even paying any like, attention you know at what? all. I need to check I, something for my chatter, whatever this is going to be. Like, <laughs> it'll, it'll go on for another seven or eight minutes. I'm fine. I'm not sure I'm really going to be missing anything. Oh my all God. Right. But, uh, before we get started with our first topic, just to remind you that we have a live show coming up next week, Wednesday, April 28th at 8 Eastern. We're going to be talking about the first 100 days of the Biden administration live on Facebook and YouTube. If you go to slate.com slash live, you can get more information, links to sign up for the event. It's going to be really fun. Wednesday, April 28th. And this special live show is presented by Lord Jones, who make the world's finest CBD products. 
you have heard me talking about Laura Jones products before. You'll get to see them and their beautiful packaging when you come to this live event next Wednesday, April 28th. And don't forget, our listeners will get 25% off their first order at laurajones.com slash gabfest. But go to slate.com slash live to get links to sign up for this April 28th, 8 p.m. Eastern live show. Derek Chauvin was convicted by a jury in Minnesota this week of three criminal counts in what we can now call the murder of George Floyd back in 2020. The former Minneapolis cop will be sentenced in a couple of months, and three officers who aided him, or maybe former officers who aided him, will also be likely prosecuted later this year. We are joined by Dwayne Betts, who is a poet, a lawyer, a memoirist. He's also the director of the Million Book Project, which hopefully we can talk about an initiative out of Yale Law School, where he is also a PhD candidate. Dwayne, welcome to the Gab Fest. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Dwayne, or actually any of you, were you surprised by Chauvin's conviction? Hmm. I think I was surprised by um, how relieved I was for the conviction. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. I mean, the evidence was so overwhelming. But in the moment when uh, the news was breaking, I was really anxious because I felt like this was such a low bar to convicting a police officer. And if we couldn't meet it as a jury and I guess as a country, that would have really scared me. Oh, I should say, too, I I was surprised, though, that like usually officers close ranks and it was so many police officers that were willing to say this is out of bounds. I mean, interestingly enough, they clearly weren't willing to say it beforehand. But I was actually surprised at the the willingness for so many to, to come out publicly and to testify about the absurdity of the whole thing um, after the fact. And compare that to the origin, the first press release that went out uh, from the Minneapolis Police Department, which said, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but essentially, you know, man dies of medical uh, incident. incident. Um, that distance between the testimony uh, of fellow police officers who said this was out of bounds and that press release seems to me to be a unit of measurement that's 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 important here. A chauvin. That's of, a one chauvin unit. Of measurement. Yeah, that's a that's a one chauvin. And then the question uh, to Dwayne is, okay, that's in this case, and we all felt like it was surprising, even though the, the, the it was so overwhelming the evidence. How 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 much distance do we think exists outside of this special case in terms of all the questions that it raised and whether they're still, you know, whether there's been any progress on them in the rest of the country? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that you'll find that maybe in the rest of the country there hasn't been much progress just because these are the worst cases. And they're the worst cases because they involve, uh, you know, we think about them as being in the center, but really they are in the margins. I mean, the police are more likely to kill you for jaywalking than if you just carjack somebody. And one of the reasons is that all parties know that we're in a dangerous situation when, when I carjack somebody. So when the police pick me up, I immediately understand that I'm not going to resist at all. And the police officers immediately understand that they may discharge their guns in this moment. These cases end up being always around circumstances that you would suspect get handled differently. And they don't, because how do you convince police officers to prepare themselves to say, you know what? You got this one. I'm going to take my $20 bill and give it to the shop owner. And I know where you live. I have your ID. We'll come see you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, so, one of the, actually, sorry, just to jump in on that for a second, Emily, one of the things I was struck by, Dwayne, in this was people pointing out, like, that there's so many things wrong with claiming this is, you know, justice, whatever, but, and the, and the problem with what happened with George Floyd was not simply the grotesque, obscene violence that was visited upon him, but the style of policing where you, there are two pull, cop cars that pull up, there are four officers, there's the inc- incredible escalation that happened so quickly around what was a totally trivial, nonviolent, unimportant incident. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absurd when you think about it, that like, that's not what you signed up to do. But it happens all of the time. And because most often people don't get murdered when it happens, we don't question that style of policing. When, when we're walking down the street and we see some some kid or two kids on the curb and three three cop cars around, like we don't say, what is going on here? We We actually probably think, <laughs> I think a lot of us probably think, Man, I'm glad that 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 didn't escalate. Yeah. You know, they might have been planning on doing something serious, as opposed to why this many police necessary in a, in a situation like this. Right, you never. That's like a thing that I've noticed in DC. I like never see one cop car. I, there's always two or three. There's never just like, I got this. It's anyway. Sorry, Emily, I interrupted you. Well, I feel like it's important to remember two things. One is that the legal standard for the use of force by the police is really low. So they don't have an incentive, right? As soon as they think there's a reasonable fear of risk to someone else or themselves, they're basically going to be protected in court if they use force. And so that affects that the way that they're trained. If we had a higher standard like last resort, that might have an effect. I also think, though, like we have to take into account just the sheer number of firearms in this country, right? I'm not excusing, um, you know, cops who are assuming danger when it's not there. But the fact that we have so many guns does sort of raise everybody's fear level in this way that, like, it's much harder to ask the police to stand back and not disarm. I mean, that's, like, unthinkable in the United States, but just, like, accept a slightly higher level of risk when so many people are carrying weapons. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, that's true. But I I think if people argue that one solution is that police officers shouldn't have guns, if, if, if any jurisdiction in the country decided that their police shouldn't have guns, then I think the political motivation to reduce the larger number of guns might change. Hmm. You know, we had this notion that, look, if, the, if, 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 if people on the street have guns, then would the police have to have guns because that way they could keep us safe. Imagine if the police opted out just in one community, you know. I think that the, the math of how many guns should be accessible could change dramatically. That's really interesting thought experiment. You know, there's a battle for meaning now, it seems to me, in this verdict, right? So there, there are some people who say, well, the system worked because, uh, you know, it got the bad <laughs> apple, right? It got the bad apple. The police are, are by and large, even, even Attorney General Merrick Garland said, you know, the majority of uh, police officers are honorable. And, and so this is a, an aberration and it proves that the system works. And then there are other people who say that, you know, Chauvin is, um, was just a contributing factor in Floyd's death. In other words, even though he held his knee on his, on his neck for more than nine minutes, there's a system that was contributing that, that led to those multiple police cars, that led to, to overreacting to a, a report of, of forge, forgery. So I guess the question is, what do you think about the battle for meaning f- to use this case that so shocked the nation to, to kind of win the conversation afterwards about what needs to happen 
with respect to policing in the community or just America in general? I mean, I still do think that Chauvin is, is, is an outlier. I mean, most police don't kill people. It's just really important to say that and to double down on that. And that doesn't mean that most police practice policing in a way that we would find to be legitimate. It just does mean that most police don't kill people. In terms of thinking about this case, I mean, I, I think honestly for me, the harder question is, you know, this case doesn't, in, in, in the 70s, Richard Pryor had a, 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 on one of his comedy sketches about a choco. He said, you heard of that choco that the LA police got? They would choke a fool to death. And, and this is in the 70s. And it's hilarious, and everybody's laughing, but part of the humor is to be confronted with a reality they recognize. So I think that the, the issue with the, the Chauvin decision is it doesn't actually tackle the reality people recognize, which is not that you'll get murdered by the police, but it's the fact that the police can choke you, can put their knee on your throat, and then they could excuse it all by not giving you a ticket, by not giving you a charge. I think that's the reality that most of us know somebody. Well, I know people who've had encounters with the police that was not legitimate, caused them deep pain, that they have haunted memories about it, and that they won't speak publicly about it. And all the police did was drop the charges. And that was supposed to make it okay. Can we talk a little bit about punishment? I'm, I keep worrying this in my mind. So I will say that for me, like it was... I had uh, deep feelings of emotion seeing Chauvin taken away in handcuffs. Like, seeing someone taken away in handcuffs is, like, a dramatic use of the power of the state. And even when I think it's entirely justified, like, there's part of me that just feels like, I don't know, maybe a little fear in that moment. And now, you know, so because of weird Minnesota quirky statute, we have the second degree murder conviction along with third degree murder and manslaughter, and they carry really different punishments. I mean, the maximum for second de- the second degree charge is 40 years. On the other hand, the sentencing guidelines suggest 12 and a half. I was told this week that Minnesota doesn't have consecutive sentencing for charges that are for the same underlying conduct. So I'm not positive this is correct, but that makes it seem as if... Um, He's going to do less time in prison than me. <laughs> well, that, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> that can't be right. But but what is right? Like, do does the country do, you know, does George Floyd's family, like, is it right to think that this man should go to prison for 40 years? Or if you're someone who worries a lot about really long sentences, which I certainly do, like, does that seem excessive even in this case? Yeah, I, I think the problem there, I mean, it's a few, just the, the legal technical problem is that they have to have a mini trial to prove the aggravators, if you want to get that sentence enhancement, to get it from 12 to 40. And if we were having a different right. conversation, we would say, we hate sentence enhancements, and we think that they shouldn't exist and we think that, that, that they're like a, a, a problem inherently with, with sentencing in America. And now we're rooting for it because a lot of people want them to have 40. I think that, that what we really see is that by making the possibility of punishment limitless, we have basically like abdicated the responsibility of saying what is the equitable punishment. And, and the problem, and particularly with police, you can see that we, we say deterrence. And for most people, it doesn't matter. But you could imagine that this would really matter for police. If you knew that you killed somebody, you do 15 years, 
the conduct would be different. You know, it would be dramatically different. And and I personally, I, I you know, I hate to say this. I mean, I, I I don't hate to say this, but this is not accountability. This is punishment. And I think punishment for for murder, you killed somebody, you could do 15 years. And and you should be able to do 15 years and not complain about the injustice of doing 15 years since you've deprived somebody else of, you know, a lifetime. And, and so I feel like if, if it was just cut and dry, you do 15, you do 20, and we had an argument about what that number would be, uh, I think we would have a more equitable system because it would be less people walking away in handcuffs. And also, they would have looked at, I, I mean, if Floyd was, he was facing what, five years? How do you how do you face five years for forgery? That's an absurdity. And so it's like we have a bunch of instances in the system where we have chosen not to ask what is a just punishment and instead just say, well, if we make it limitless, then we could kick the bucket to the prosecutor or to the judge. And they act under the cover of darkness because most cases nobody is watching the way we're watching this one. Right. Right. I, I, I get uncomfortable because, you know, my own feeling is like 40 years is too much for a crime, even a crime, because I think 40 years is too much for almost any crime that's committed. And, and, but the, to talk about it only in the case of Chauvin, like is discomforting. Like that's not the time to have the conversation, unfortunately. Dwayne, when you say it's, it's, it's not accountability, it's punishment. You mean if it were, uh, if the number were the right number for the crime, if the punishment fit the crime, then it would be accountability when it's overshoots. No, no, I think, no, I think accountability is asking something completely different. You know, who who committed the harm, um, who was harmed, and, and and like what needs to happen to to preclude it from to prevent it from happening again. And I think nobody in Minnesota after this verdict feels like safe around the police. And, and I think that's what accountability is, and it goes out much broader than Chauvin. So I just think we make a mistake when we try to conflate. The justice, the criminal justice system, and the conviction of um, an alleged, uh, you know, uh, offender con- to conflate that with accountability. Because if we do that, then we we kind of lose because the argument gets right. spun back on us when we talk about all of the other cases. Well, you just said it was accountability. So when you were talking about aggravating factors, you were talking about I, I think in Minnesota. Um, you get more years if the judge, it could have actually been the jury, Chauvin waived his right for a jury finding on this matter. If the judge finds like something on a list of like, this makes it worse, right. things like this was particularly heinous. In this particular case, there's like the cruelty of the kneeling on George Floyd's neck. There's the fact that it happened in front of children. There's the abuse of authority. Um, in other cases, other aggravating factors come into play. But I guess one thing I was thinking, and um, maybe this is what you were saying before, is that if we had narrower sentencing ranges, if we as, you know, the legislature, our democratically elected representatives said, you know, no to this idea that you go up to 40 for these reasons, but that, you know, murder is supposed to be 15 to 20 years for everybody, then we would be, is, is that what you are getting at? Like the idea that yes. we'd be limiting the range in a different way. Yeah. But Emily, isn't the problem isn't the problem that prosecutors have gamed the system by like like creating a kind of roulette with defendants about what they're charging them with? And they think the prosecutors have this enormous amount of discretion about what they're going to charge someone with and therefore what the punishment and so you could say like, oh, it if someone is convicted, the punishment is it should be in this very narrow band 
and ever and it's certain and it's in a narrow band. But then, but the but the predicate, the thing that was fed into the machine, was was arbitrary and controlled by a prosecutor. But, and like, but if, and 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 ju- and like shaped by whether someone was willing to take a plea or not. But but if you if you could get twenty years for murder one, like I give you a perfect example, in in Virginia, a guy got it was capital murder. He got sentenced to life. He killed a police officer. He did forty years. Thirty-one of those years with, was without an institutional charge. The parole board released him, and it has been news in Virginia for the past three, four, five months since his release. Everybody, like a lot of people, um, Republican politicians complaining about his release, pundits complaining about his release. Nobody asking if his conduct in prison warranted parole. He went 31 years without a charge, and the correctional officer said that this is the most peaceful person I've ever met, that he stopped riots, that he stopped fights, that he stopped people from being stabbed. The only reason we have to have this conversation about him is because we could sentence him to life. So if, if the top charge, which is you know capital murder, murder yeah. one, carried 20 years, then the downward pressure on all sentences would be apparent, and prosecutors would lose some of that, some of that power that they have from having a, a, a menu option of crimes to charge people with. That would be great. That's right. Dwayne, before we let you go, can can you talk for a minute about the Million Book Project? Because we all participated in it earlier this year, I think, it, or I guess last year. And I think it's a magnificent idea. And and I know GabFest listeners will want to know more about it. Yeah, we just hit a pretty significant milestone in the sense that we sent 10,000 books in a prison. And we've sent it in during COVID. So it's been a real challenge because people lack access to libraries. They lack access to education and they lack access to visits. So the books have been like visitors for them. But the central premise of the Million Book Project is that books transform lives. They give you an opportunity to see more of the world than you can see without them. I sent Atlas Obscura in to one of these prisons that allow hardback books. And it's crazy. My man is like, man, you know, it's a list of 20 people that want to look at this Atlas Obscura book. I mean, oh, you know, we learned about made my the, heart the world feel good, that we didn't man. know existed, right? Oh, and so, thank um, you. yeah, and so it was cool because we created the Freedom Library, which is which is a literal library in people's living spaces, right? So it's a structure with bookshelves and a seating area, and also this five hundred book collection that we specially curated. That you know, it's, it's heavy on fiction, it's heavy on nonfiction. I mean, on, on poetry and heavy on the kind of nonfiction that that tells stories. And uh, and it's been like an exciting, wonderful thing to do because, you know, books radically transform my life. I mean, we talk about who Chauvin is going in or who any criminal defendant is going in. But the Million Book Project asks who you might become while you're inside. And, and now, you know, Chauvin is a part of um, that ignominious group of, of, of people called convicted felons. And I think, um, you know, it's an expectation for everybody inside uh, once you had that state number to imagine a different life for yourself because I think, um, and I think this is true for Chauvin. I, I'll, I'll say this. I don't, I don't know him, but I think, um, most of us didn't wake up in the morning and, and want to ruin somebody's life forever. And, and we don't think seriously about what we should do as a society to, to put checks in place so that that doesn't happen, but also what we do on the back end so that we actually equip folks to be contemplative and reflective and, and have an opportunity to transform themselves. And, you know, I know no better invention to do that than story. How can how can GapFest listeners help out the Million Book Project? Well, this is April. You know, we actually got a fundraiser going on now. So you can go to millionbookproject.org and check us out and see the work that we're doing. And you can donate. But you could, you could you know, um, check out our literary ambassadors, of which Emily is one. And um, I'm pulling John Dickerson in to be one because, you know, um, he has a fantastic new book out, too. And I think they could go to the website. They could check out the website, look at our literary ambassadors, 
and tell people about the project. One of the things is that it's not about donating used books. It's about arguing that people should have new, largely contemporary books. I'll just plug this one fantastic piece of the project. Uh, I started a, a publishing company named Fetch, Juvie, and Luke. I got four of my friends out of prison, and three of them, Fetch, Juvie, and Luke, I got them out in the last year. So I started a publishing company after that name. And, and what I want to do is we're republishing a series of classics. So Moby Dick, uh, The Dubliners, Jane Eyre, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Frankenstein, Souls of Black Folks, uh, Frederick Douglass. And we're publishing these books. But the reason why we're doing new editions is because we have contemporary writers like Marlon James, uh, George Saunders, Layla Lalami, um, writing introductions. And the introductions are as letters, right? So it's like, how do you tell somebody why a book matters? Mrs. Dalloway. And it's a fantastic aspect of the project because we're trying to um, create a, a, a sort of conversation across across the decades, really, across scores of years with contemporary writers and those who have um, long gone. And so you should check that out. And once we release that, you should purchase it because all of the proceeds for having a set of uh, 16 books. And, oh, Emily was on the show, name that book. But all of the proceeds go um, to the Million Book Project. And I think that'll be a collection that people would love to have. When does that collection, when, when does that come out? When can you buy we it? We intend on releasing it in September. The look on John Dickerson's <laughs> face. The look He's on John love. Dickerson's face is something precious. Jamaica Kincaid is when, writing about Jane Eyre. Oh, it's it's oh, so fantastic. Um, we'll, we'll talk afterwards. That's <laughs> Dwayne Betts and his Million Book Project. Check it out. Dwayne, come back on the Gap Fest anytime. Thank you for being here. It was a pleasure. Polling puts Andrew Yang ahead in the New York Democratic mayoral primary, which is going to be held in mid-June. He's got support around 20 to 30%. Uh, in a field of approximately like 800 candidates. Um, I think I'm technically, as a New York resident, I think I am a candidate. Are you? How? Yeah, but you'd poll really well, John. You'd probably you'd do you do well. The oh, you'd have to declare party affiliation, so you might mm. not want to do that. That's a good point. Yang's views are heterodox, but they are definitely not on the progressive side of the ledger in this campaign, which includes some really quite progressive candidates. Um, so, John, you are a New Yorker. Like, what would you get a sense about why Yang, who is barely a New York City resident and has not really been involved in local politics at all, is leading over people who have been much more involved in the city life? Yeah. I, um, well, I, I should probably disclose that a friend of mine, Sean Donovan, is one of the people running. Wait, running for mayor? Yeah. Oh, um, well. However, that doesn't give me any insight into the, into the race, particularly... I. What's what I, I don't really have a good answer for you, David. I mean, the pat answer is he's a name, you know, people are not really fully engaged into the full range of candidates in New York. But but the reason that that's more complicated is, first of all, in off year elections, you have low turnout and they tend to be activists or people who are really involved in politics. So you would think that would put pressure against Yang um, when you have these low turnout, high activist elections. The, the activists would be the ones that might be more interested in the other characters, particularly the the more progressive ones. On the other hand, because there are so many candidates, Yang represents, you know, kind of one group, although he has some competition ideologically, and the others are all split. The, um, so I don't, I, I guess I would sort of land on that final one, which is the other vote is the, the traditional vote is split in New York, and he's benef he is benefiting from some amount of celebrity. The question is whether that goes 
down as people pay start paying more attention. And then at some point we should talk about ranked choice voting, which is the first time that that's going to happen, which will be a really interesting experiment yeah. in New oh York. Oh my gosh, it's um, so exciting. Yeah. Should we tell people what that is and how it works real quick? Or Yeah, sure. So you have a bunch of candidates, they have a vote, whoever comes in last. So people list their top five choices in order of preference. And and then when they have their first vote, whoever's at the bottom, whoever is occupying the basement. They, if no one gets 50 percent. If no one. If someone you. gets if someone gets 50 percent, they win. Somebody gets 50 percent. It's over. We have a new mayor because essentially in New York, if you win the Democratic primary, then you win because the Republicans don't have a, uh, enough strength. If you don't get 50 percent, the last person on the on the <laughs> on the balloting gets kicked off the island. And then their voters, whoever they put second, they distribute the votes accordingly and then you look at the new uh, at the new arrangement and you keep doing that until uh, you get somebody over 50%, right? I think it's I think that's the terminating um, thing. So polls done at the moment show Yang um, basically Scott Stringer who's the comptroller who's the kind of more liberal not kind of is the more liberal candidate was just endorsed by the um, uh, teachers union kind of comes down between the two of them and Yang wins in current polling, although let's, you know, with all the caveats about polling and also caveats about ranked choice polling, because it's a little bit different than regular polling. Should we also mention that Eric Adams is polling kind of high, right? He's, he's the, the former... He's the Brooklyn Borough President. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, I mean, John, I think you're totally right about the fractured nature of the race. This also feels like it's COVID plus like the Trumpian um, version of politics in New York City, where like everyone's antsy and bored and worried about the future of New York and whether it's going to sort of like have its magic when it comes back. And here's this celebrity candidate who kind of waltzes onto the field and he's throwing around what sound like big ideas and he gets attention from the media and from people on the street for being famous. And then that sort of builds its own momentum. And before anyone knows something that like might have been kind of like a joke or quixotic or not that serious is like taking the lead. And then it's like hard to bring that back. Yeah. And I, I mean, also want to clarify that I was not saying that Yang was like Trump in his politics. I hope yeah, that's yeah. obvious, but no, I'm just going to put that out there. The, the mayor of New York is a performative job. It's a job which has been done by people who are celebrities and who act like celebrities. If you think Rudy Giuliani you know, Rudy Giuliani was a highly performative mayor. Michael Bloomberg was highly performative and also was willing to spend an infinite amount of his own money to kind of back up what he was performing. Ed Koch, a highly performative person. John Lindsay. Yeah. It's, it is not surprising that, that Andrew Yang, who is, who is smart, he's telegenic, he's fun. He has a really popular, very provocative, interesting idea, this UBI idea, universal basic income idea. And so it, it's not at all surprising that that would resonate. I guess to me, like the the interesting question, which I don't really have an answer to, but maybe one of you does, is we've seen in New York this tremendous progressive feeling and movement, and, and you can see it manifested in some of the, the people who are elected to state legislature and then, and then nationally, of course, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, is that is that uh, not relevant to a Democratic primary for mayor, or is it just that that's actually a relatively small group, or is that that people just haven't those those folks haven't uh, coalesced around one person? If they did, they would dominate. Well, that's what I was stumbling around trying to figure out because you would 
you know, the, the argument is basically that this should be a, um, a more progressive electorate and therefore Yang should be shouldn't be doing as well he is. But it's it's this idea of splitting the vote. And um, and and so what kind of Democrats are going to turn? I mean, Bill de Blasio was obviously a much more progressive mayor than than traditionally. And also, I wonder where he fits in the performative category. But there also is a huge management component. This is like an enormous budget with a million departments. Like, it's not like being a senator or a congressperson where you just like show up and vote and you run your little office. Like, this is a huge management task. And that's the part of it that makes me incredibly nervous. Like the idea that, I mean, I don't live in New York, so this isn't directly my problem. And I will go on a little complaining rant about how like, focused, over-focused we tend to be in the media about New York. That said, the idea of turning over this, like, hugely complicated, you know, multi-billion operation to someone who hasn't really run anything of any size, like, that seems kind of crazy. I'm so glad you made that point, Emily, because it's it's the ignoring the fact of what the job actually is and requires. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I, as you guys know, there's... uh, no box of chocolates big enough to hold my love for Michael Bloomberg. And Bloomberg was a really successful, I mean, controversial mayor of New York, but a really successful, generally mayor of New York. And one of the reasons why he was really successful is he's somebody who has spent his professional life trying to run things and being pretty good at running a very large corporation that he built from nothing. And, and I think did a pretty good job of running the New York City government, which is a fiendishly difficult thing to to kind of keep to heel and the idea that that yang who's never run anything would be in charge of that is i suppose disheartening but like i don't know there they you he doesn't have to run everything himself like you don't have to do the whole job yourself you can no. hire well like there are people there are people who do hire well yeah to do that although we don't so then you'd have to find out if that's what he does i mean my favorite expression from your lover Mike Bloomberg is that when he was asked what did he do in his first hundred days he said I hired my team and he said nobody in the press understood what that meant it goes right to your point he said it's I I built the team that's going to do the that's going to do the work so he recognized right away that it's not a one-man job do you guys think that Andrew Yang's just as a matter of his his political strategy his political uh how he goes about being a politician he made his name for himself he had this good idea this ubi idea which he wants to try in kind of a small scale in new york spending a billion dollars of city money every year to give five hundred thousand needy new yorkers two thousand dollars a year that's his plan and then perhaps matched by some private donations but he popularized that idea as a presidential candidate in 2019 basically by going on very popular podcasts including a lot of podcasts uh, hosted by right-wing douchebags. I think we're the only podcast that never had him on. I don't know why we, why didn't we not have him on? What is our problem? I'm sure that I didn't even know who didn't he have was. Him. But it, what, do you think it's wrong for a politician who is on the left to flirt with conservative and douchebags like Ben Shapiro and Joe Rogan? Absolutely not. I mean, I te- yeah, I feel like you want to get your message out. You're supposed to show you can talk to lots of people who think super different things and like make your argument to them too. I don't hold that against him at all. 100%. And also just more broadly, same with the people on the right going on, you know, the equivalent of the left is that one of the things that's awful about politics right now is it's just competing assertions and hot takes. And you 
you can, I guess you can go on those shows and just scream your assertions. But um, and I think Pete Buttigieg has had some success doing this on Fox. On Fox. Yeah. yeah. He goes on and he doesn't just assert. He is, you know, he uses argumentation and marshals his facts and builds support for what he's trying to say, which I think is just healthy in general. A lot of people would argue, and there's plenty of evidence and analysis to suggest that it doesn't change the minds of the people who are listening on those particular channels. But it does sharpen your your argument, both for yourself and your own side. And it just leads to a better world if you if you've actually thought things through as opposed to just honking out the same nostrums for your for, for the applause of your own team. Can I say one more thing about this? So our former colleague Jack Schaefer wrote a piece this week in Politico about Substack and the kind of move of writers over to Substack. And he made this point that I keep thinking about, which is that, you know, there are a bunch of writers who've moved over there who are on some kind of spectrum of like heterodox, right? Like, you know, I mean, I I don't really think that Matt Iglesias, he's like a strong liberal, but he's on this list. And then, you know, further much further over in some other place entirely is like Glenn Greenwald. And then there are people in between, Andrew Sullivan, Barry Weiss, whatever. Well, I think what's interesting, sorry to interrupt you, Emily. What's interesting is like, it's actually not like over there on the left over there. It's like over there in blue, over there in, in, in yeah. gauze. Like it's like the categories are not exactly left, yes, right. They're not, or they're not right, left. That's totally right. fair. I just, yeah, I agreed. So my only point is stolen from Jack. Jack was saying that when you look at the success this group is having on Substack, they have thousands of subscribers, they're making money. It suggests that there is an underserved market for heterodox writing. I mean, some of these people could totally get hired by mainstream publications, but some of them could not or not easily. And I just wonder if there is a kind of brittleness and rigidity in our thinking about who you get to talk to, who you present as making different kinds of political arguments. And it's related to this question of like, who's ta- whose podcast is it okay to go on? And maybe the lines are getting drawn in a too narrow way in some and, circumstances. And, and it's related to the idea of, I think, what kind of politicians people want to listen to. I think there's a Joe Biden is the person who won the Democratic nomination going away. Joe Biden is not a raging liberal. He is not. He is. He's a really straightforward Democrat. Andrew Yang is super heterodox and he's really progressive on things and not on others. And people but people like people, the appetite for voters may not be as rigid as people think for voting for candidates. My last question is this. If you're a progressive I wonder if it becomes the case that people start to strategize if they the question is how negative their feelings about Yang are. Let's say they would prefer Stringer or one of the other more liberal candidates, but they don't think they're going to win, but they really don't want Yang. Do they then start to get into strategic voting and do candidates start uh, asking them to be strategic so that they don't somehow through the ranked choice voting end up giving votes to Yang in other words, if my number one progressive candidate can't win, do I do something strategic so that a second one uh, might win for the purposes of making sure that Yang doesn't get in? I wonder if get people get that strategic. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest. You also get to support the great journalism that Slate does, and you get bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, which we're about to hear more about, and Dear Prudence. We're super excited about our bonus segment on Slate Plus today which if you go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member, you will get to hear Dwayne Betts, who you just heard on the GabFest, is going to read one of his poems. It's called When I Think of Tamir Rice While Driving. 
we're so excited to to have Dwayne do that as a Slate Plus segment. It's so much better than whatever else we could have talked about. It's great. So slate.com slash GabFest Plus. It was my second best idea of the week. My best idea was having Dwayne on the show. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Slow Burn is the magnificent Slate podcast that each season digs deep, deep, deep into a historical episode that you thought you understood and makes you realize that you really didn't. It's done Watergate. It did the Clinton sex scandal. It did the murders of Tupac and Biggie. It did the rise of David Duke. Now comes season five, The Road to Iraq. It's debuting this week. It's hosted by Noreen Malone, our colleague at Slate back in the day, who is now diving into a war that cost us trillions of dollars, thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of Iraqi lives, and trying to understand how it happened. Noreen, welcome to the GabFest. Congratulations on Slow Burn. Why look at the origins of the Iraq war now? What does it have to tell us about the world we live in today? Well, we've lived through a lot of governmental failure at this point on various scale. And for me, at least, Iraq was sort of the version of, for a lot of boomers, they, they trace everything back to Vietnam. I was in high school when Iraq happened. Iraq is sort of my version of Vietnam. And uh, there's an argument to be made that we are, you know, a lot of the forces that brought about the political world that we're living in now are a result of the disaster of the Iraq war. You know, this sort of 
hollowing out of trust in the government, trust in the media, um, a lot of the spending choices that were made, even something like, you know, this isn't exactly Iraq, it's more like the war on terror, but even something like the militarization of the police, of local police forces, you could tie back to forces that came up in that time. So it just felt like it's this giant thing we're living in the shadow of. It's not that long ago, but it's also at this point almost 20 years ago. Um, It felt like the right moment to revisit it. When I look back at this, I always am so struck by how many people supported the Iraq War, you know, not just supporters of George W. Bush, but lots of people in mainstream media, lots of people um, who I think now would never do so. I was not among them. You. I was, yeah. I was opposed to the Iraq War, but I always wonder if I had been at Slate or at any kind of national media organization at the time, whether I would have held on to my opposition or caved in the face of all these smart people who knew more than me saying this is the right thing to do. And I wonder when you look back at that part of it, at the way in which journalism was or wasn't implicated in the story, what conclusions you draw. There are sort of two pieces of the way that that journalism was implicated. One is people at magazines like Slate or The New Republic or The Weekly Standard, the sort of little magazines, the magazines of ideas, they were going out and making a moral case for the war. Um, That was also happening on blogs, which were then relatively new. But a lot of the sort of hashing out of should we or shouldn't we was happening at these places. And you could argue it doesn't matter what people at Slate or the New Republic think. On the other hand, you know, at the time, Dick Cheney's office got 30 copies of the Weekly Standard every week um, and, and a similar number of copies of the New Republic. They were 30, read 30 by... copies? Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> Did they, re- they didn't get really a, a similar was, cop- number of New Republic. Although, actually, I remember, do you guys remember the Weekly I I, Standard? The Weekly Standard used to dead drop that magazine everywhere. I remember at the Slate office, we got like six copies, which means I guess we were one fifth of a Cheney, but man, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I should, I should fact check that, but that is, that is my recollection, um, is that it is something sort of crazy that it was just, when you walked into those offices, maybe there weren't 30 copies of the New Republic, but it was on the coffee table. So those people, people there were reading it. Um, you know, if you were a, if you were a senator in a position of real power deciding whether or not to vote for or against this war, the fact that, you know, David Remnick of The New Yorker had made the case for it in print or, you know, the editor of The Atlantic, it sort of gave you a permission structure to do this thing that you weren't um, you weren't just sort of kowtowing to Bush. Then there's the other piece of journalistic failure that happened in the war, which was just sort of lack of oversight. So there's, of course, the famous example of Judy Miller in the New York Times. She was not the only reporter who was sort of snowed by the Bush administration or, or writing these sort of fantastical stories. You know, Jeffrey Goldberg, who, who wrote in The New Yorker, sort of uh, tied al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein together in a way that was very aggressive and turned out not to be true at all. There were a lot of people doing this kind of story the cable, you know, cable news, they started wearing flag pins. There was a just a general air of we don't question the Bush administration. What I was always interested in that argument that that this was actually there was a kind of fervor whipped up by the anthrax attacks that created a kind of desirability bias for just kind of going after these forces Um that made people totally impervious to actual evidence or thinking, was that part of it? Did they have blinders on? 
Or was there, you know, a really good case and, you know, in in, uh, making tough national security decisions, you never have 100% certainty. And so they got to 80% and they thought that was sufficient. Like where in the official world do you think the big mistake was made? Well, it's funny that you mentioned anthrax. You will enjoy episode two of Slow Burn, which is all about the anthrax attacks. I had sort of forgotten about them until I started thinking about, okay, how am I going to structure this, right? Because they weren't the big they weren't the big terror attack of that fall of 2001, obviously. But if you're thinking about Iraq and you're thinking about bioterror and all of a sudden white powder is showing up in the mail and you're Dick Cheney and you've gotten newly obsessed with bioterror, I mean, this is, this is going to frighten you. Um, so I... You know, I think that there is um, there were people who obviously wanted to go into Iraq long before this happened. We we talked to a um, a CIA uh, the chief of the Iraq group who said, you know, before the election, we were already moving around people so that there would be more people focused on Iraq because we knew that this was going to happen after nine eleven. We really knew it was going to happen, and that was because. Again, the permission structure sort of happened. And B, people were genuinely scared. They had screwed up about 9-11 and they didn't want to let it happen again. And there was just this, you know, the worst case scenario has already happened. There could be another one that we don't even, we can't even predict. And, you know, we, we have to we have to cover our ass, basically. So, Noreen, in thinking about COVID-19, one of the things that in the reporting I've done is really clear is the people who who signaled the early warning signs. They were out there, and there were a lot of them, and they were really right. And they weren't just right because they're chicken littles. They were right. They knew what to do, and they knew why what was happening was happening. What's frightening about COVID-19, and I wonder if you find the same thing with the Iraq war, is that the system that kept them from being heard, you know, that didn't hear their alarms, is still totally in place. There is a basically a disconnect between the people who know and the people who make decisions and why they can't hear each other. And so we're ready to screw this all up again. Do you think that's true with Iraq? Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison, actually. If you if you talk to people who are working sort of on, you know, um, regional desks at the State Department or very specific areas in academia, they would have told you that a lot of these grand theories about what would happen if you invaded Iraq were just wrong, but they weren't the people who were sort of talking to the decision makers. They weren't the people who were talking to the reporters who were writing the splashy stories. There is a sort of the the sort of deep, I guess, deep state bureaucrats is what you might call them in some way, um, were being ignored. And I think you see that, you know, certainly with COVID, um, that the people making the decisions didn't have much scientific knowledge or deliberately chose to ignore it. But the war itself is its own story that's, you know, many podcasts worth. And um, we are sort of leaving off, our last episode is sort of, why was there this failure to plan? What were the decisions that were made in the spring and summer that that and before then that um, set the occupation up for failure? Noreen Malone is the host of The Road to Iraq, the new season of Slow Burn. Check it out, whatever podcast app you use. Congratulations, Noreen. Thanks. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're contemplating mistaken wars of your youth. What will you be chattering about with your loved ones, Emily? I have been waiting to do this chatter for weeks, if not months. Um, 
a an eight part TV documentary called Philly DA started airing uh, this week on PBS, and it's about the office of Larry Krasner, the district attorney in Philadelphia. I should disclose immediately that my sister, Dana Bazelon, is uh, both a part of Krasner's office and very much a part of the TV show. I think I would have loved it nonetheless, because it's like a procedural, but from inside the office. I mean, there's really just this pretty amazing footage of people trying to hash out how to change criminal justice in Philadelphia. You know, you have this big DA's office that had not been the least bit progressive before Krasner was elected. And then you have all the other moving parts of Philadelphia, the police department, the police union, the mayor's office, parole, probation, the courts, and you get to see how it works. So I've watched three episodes so far. I'm totally drawn in. I really recommend this series. It's called, again, Philly DA, and you can find it on pbs.org or your local PBS station and probably other places I haven't even thought of. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? Any of your siblings in a new TV show? Uh, no, but you know, hope springs eternal. Um, <laughs> that uh, that there's a there's a production deal out there for them. Um, I think you could imagine a documentary slash series of articles on the Bazelon sisters. Oh my as god! A, as a collective, it is so coming. It is absolutely coming. Save us! I, I can't believe it hasn't been done already. A, let's play assignment editor. Come on, some. Ugh. Come on, it's people! Kind of amazing that it hasn't been done. Luckily, we can save ourselves from such a fate. <laughs> so um, I have three chatters: two super short, one long. One is Ezra Klein's uh, the Ezra Klein show on anxiety was is just very good. Um, so you should go listen to that. Um, second was a study that found if you teach kids chess when they're younger, they have better, per- um, they can perceive risk better. We've talked a lot about risk perception. Um, oh, I really don't like and, this pro-chess little <laughs> propaganda here. And, um, go ahead. I can't play chess. I can't play chess. So this is not. My, my you know, uh, 12-year-old is obsessed with chess these days. Yeah. It's great. It helps you, it helps you both awesome. know when to take educated risks, you know, when to sacrifice a knight or something, but also when not to take foolhardy risks. So it teaches that that important difference between a risk and a gamble. Um, but then finally, my uh, the longer portion of my chatter is about the death of uh, Walter Fritz Mondale, who was a senator from Minnesota, a vice president under Jimmy Carter, and then also, um, obviously, the 1984 Democratic nominee. Joe Trippi, the Democratic strategist, tell, told a story on Twitter um, about working for Mondale in 1984. He was running Iowa for him and then Pennsylvania, and it came down, all came down to Pennsylvania. When he was running Iowa for him, he used to walk around the tarmac with Mondale whenever he'd arrive in the state, giving him an update on how things were going. And then they'd chat. And at one point, Mondale asked him about his father. And Trippi said he'd been estranged from his father for five years because as a son of an Italian immigrant, his father expected him to go into the family business and was disappointed that he'd gone into politics. They get to Pennsylvania, which is make or break against Gary Hart. Trippy is running the state, and Wandale wins, and this crucial, crucial, crucial primary, uh, which basically lets him go on to win, you know, to be the nominee of the party. And on the night that Mondale wins, the night of his great triumph, they call Trippy into Mondale's hotel room and say, you've got to come up here and talk to the candidate. And as he's entering the room, he hears the candidate talking to another man, explaining to this man all the good things that his son has done for people uh, in need and why being in politics is a noble business. 
Mondale had called Trippi's father and brought him to Pennsylvania to make this case to him and then reunite him with his son. And Trippi um, then, re, you know, reunited with his father. And it just seemed to me that that story of in your moment of great triumph, when you're thinking about and doing things for other people is an amazing legacy, which was then compounded by Mondale's letter to his team right before he died, in which he wrote, well, my time has come. I am eager to rejoin Joan and Eleanor, his wife and daughter. Before I go, I wanted to let you know how much you meant to me. Never has a public servant had a better group of people working at their side. Together, we have accomplished so much. And I know you will keep up the good fight. Joe in the White House certainly helps. I always knew it would be okay if I arrived someplace and was greeted by one of you. My best to all of you. So in his last moments, he's thinking again about other people. And I love that line. I always knew it would be okay if I arrived someplace and was greeted by one of you. I think that's the kind of person I want to be. Is when somebody else arrives, they know it'll be okay because I'm there. So that's a pretty amazing way to end a life. Um, you can either live by your resume or your eulogy. Uh, and when your behavior is your own eulogy, um, it seems like you've gone out pretty well. Um, I feel that way about both of you, I must say. I do too. That was, I saw both of those things, John. I was I similarly moved. Thanks for chattering them. I have Absolutely. two quick chatters, both from the Washington Post, um, the one really great and one really grim. Uh, the great one is Harriet Tubman's childhood home or, or early early adulthood home has been found, apparently. Some amazing archaeological work on the eastern shore of Maryland allowed archaeologists to find the location they think of where her father, Ben Ross, sheltered her in the 1840s. Um, it's just like tiny little, little bits of evidence, a coin, one coin, some pottery, a button, some old records, and 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 they dug a thousand pits, and they seem to have found the place where where Ben Ross and his wife sheltered Tubman and st and several of her siblings when they were still enslaved before Tubman became uh, this heroic figure on the Underground Railroad. Harry Tubman is, I think, like arguably the the most heroic and admirable of all Americans, and so it's the more we can know about her life, the better. And it's just south of Cambridge, Maryland, if you want to go investigate it in a, the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. The really grim story, which I wanted, I was hoping to talk about with uh, Dwayne Betts, but we didn't really have time. I don't know if you guys saw this, but D.C., it turns out, has kept everyone in D.C. jail, the 1,500 people in D.C. jail, under effectively sort of administrative isolation for the entire length of the pandemic. 23 hours in their cell, one hour for exercise, that one hour uh, often only indoors. Uh, they Most of the cells are in isolation or maybe with one other person. No contact, no social life, no visits to libraries, no visits, no barber. Um, these are for people who were not even convicted of crimes in many cases. These are people awaiting trial. It's just shocking that for 400-plus days— this entire population of DC jail has been basically in mass solitary confinement. It's, it's an act of torture. And, and I can't believe I'm ashamed that my city is doing this. And it's, it's absolutely shocking. And it turns out that Vermont has done something similar in its prison. So I hope this is lifted. This should be listed. This must be lifted. 
Listeners, thank you for sending us chatter. You've tweeted them to us at at SlateGavis. Please keep them coming. And we have a listener chatter today sent to us at at SlateGabFest from Adam Siegel. Adam Siegel, take it away. An article in this week's Economist called How Spooks Are Turning to Super Forecasting in the Cosmic Bazaar talked about a project by the UK government with the cool codename Cosmic Bazaar where intelligence analysts, the military, and other security personnel are invited to give predictions about the outcome of geopolitical events that could impact the country. Everyone participates anonymously, so no matter if you're the head of intelligence or just a junior analyst, you're only recognized for the accuracy of your predictions. Also, everyone's predictions are combined as a sort of wisdom of the crowd prediction that tends to be quite accurate. And because all the predictions are about events where the outcome is eventually known, anyone participating gets to learn what they're good and bad at predicting and where they may have biases that are leading them to be inaccurate. Thanks, Adam Siegel. Please tweet your chatter to us at at SlateGabFest. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer, and Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. Please come to our live show next week. Go to slate.com slash live. It's going to be Wednesday, April 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and Facebook. Please join us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. We have a really special treat. Dwayne Betts, uh, in addition to being a brilliant commentator on today's GabFest, is a is a poet and a much praised and much awarded poet. And he uh, wrote a poem that Emily really loved and pointed out to us, and we've asked him to read it. When I think of Tamir Rice while driving, in my back seat, my sons laugh and tussle. Far from Tamir's age, Adorned with his complexion and cadence and already worn about toy pistols. Though my rhetoric ain't about fear, but dislike. About how guns have haunted me since I first touched a pistol's grip. I think of Tamir twice blink and confront my weapons inadequacy. How some laws invents the geometry that baffles. This is how misery sounds. My boys playing in the back seat, juxtaposed against the 12-year-old's murder playing in my head. My tongue cleaves to the roof. My right hand has forgotten. This should not be the brick and mortar of America. A murdered child and a violence that may stop the laughter in my back seat. I am a black father driving his black sons to school in the death of a black boy ride shotgun. As if this could be a funeral procession. The death a silent thing in the air unmentioned. But Tamir's murder must be more than warning about recklessness and abandoned justice and white terrorist ghosts. And this is why I hate it all. The protests and the encounters. The civil rights attorneys that stalk the bodies of the murder. This dance of ours that reduces humanity to the dichotomy of the veil. A mind may abandon sanity. Mind is no sieve. And there is no elixir. Are we bound to be haunted by the temptation 
to turn everything we see into a grave and make home the series of cells that so many brothers already call their tomb? Thank you, Dwayne. Goodbye, Slate Plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.